0: As we remain standing, we come now to the Word of God, continuing to our study through the epistle of Paul to the Galatian church. And as we do so, we'll, we'll be doing for several more weeks, working through chapters 3 and 4, and Paul will be addressing justification by faith alone. And so the challenge to us will be to hear Paul preach the word to us and to receive it freshly, to have this one doctrine driven in to the very core of our hearts and know that it is true and apply it in our lives. So be preaching this morning from verses 6 through 14, I believe, but in order to capture the full context, I'll begin reading chapter 3 at verse 1. Hear now the word of the Lord. O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you, that you should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you? This only would I learn of you. Received ye the Spirit by the works of the law, or by the hearing of faith? Are ye so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are ye now made perfect by the flesh? Have ye suffered so many things in vain? If it be yet in vain, he, that minister, he therefore that ministereth to you the Spirit and worketh miracles among you, doeth he by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Even as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness, know ye therefore that they which are of faith the same are the children of Abraham. And the Scripture Foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preach before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. So then they which be of faith are blessed with faith, faithful Abraham, for as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is every one that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God, it is evident, for the just shall live by faith. And the law is not of faith, but the man that doeth them shall live in them. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is every one that hangeth on a tree. That the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. The Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. And let me open this in a word of prayer. All glorious and most gracious Father in heaven, hallowed and blessed above all names is your holy name. We give you thanks for your abundant mercy toward your people. In the midst of our bondage, under the law, and unto our sins, you bring good tidings and proclaim, proclaim liberty in our captivity. You provide beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, and the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that your righteousness might abound and that you might be glorified. We thank you for sending your own dear Son in the fullness of time to fulfill the righteousness of the law, and for bearing in his body the penalty due our sins. We rejoice that he is risen and is even now making all his and your enemies his footstool, and death is swallowed up in victory. Thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, therefore, in his mighty name, that you would be pleased to send your Holy Spirit to attend the preaching of your word, that you would send it forth in power to be received in faith by all whom your Spirit has appointed to hear such astoundingly good news. Amen and amen. So as we continue to work our way through Paul's epistle to the Galatians, we see Paul here shifting his argument from that of a series of questions designed to stir the Galatians out of their foolishness by having them to recall the manner and means of their salvation. And this is where he is making an experiential argument. In verses 1 through 5, he asked the Galatians six rhetorical questions, one right after the other, to bring to their minds the gospel that had been so vividly portrayed to them that it couldn't be denied. He asked them, Who has bewitched you? so that the spell of the Judaizers might be broken, and so that they could see clearly the error that they were beginning to embrace. He forces them to recall that they had received the Spirit by faith, and that they therefore would be foolish to pursue holiness in the flesh. He reminds them of the miracles and signs and wonders that were performed by the Spirit through faith. They knew all of this. It was part of Of their experience. But now in verses 6 through 14, Paul shifts from a personally provocative experiential line of questioning to an historical argument for justification by faith alone, using the very name that the Judaizers were no doubt basing their arguments upon, namely that of Abraham. It is easy to see the importance of Abraham Abraham was the father of the Jews, of the nation of Israel. And as the Judaizers made their case to the Galatians, they probably read and referred often to Scripture, particularly Genesis 17. And God said to Abraham, "'As for you, you shall keep my covenant and your descendants after you throughout their generations.'" This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins. And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. And the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Circumcision is the sign of the covenant given by God to Abraham. The Judaizers were very serious about this requirement. Belonging to God meant being a child of Abraham. So when the Jews wanted to prove to Jesus that they were the children of God, as we see in John 8, they said, We are Abraham's descendants, and we have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free. Abraham is our father. Therefore, the Judaizers would say, if the Gentiles wanted to belong to God, they had to become children of Father Abraham. Father Abraham. Do you remember that Bible song? Raise your hand if you know Father Abraham. Oh, good. I picked one people knew. So if the Judaizers had sung that song to the Galatians, it might go something like this. And feel free to join me. I might need some help here. Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham, and I am one of them. But you are not. (laughs) So let's talk about circumcision, shall we? The only way to become a true child of Father Abraham, they would say, was to be circumcised. We just read it in Scripture, right? just as it is recorded in the Scriptures. Until the Gentiles were circumcised, they had no right to call Abraham their father or to call God their father. And all of this makes sense. Complete sense. Well, not exactly. The Judaizers not only misunderstood the gospel, they were also guilty of misunderstanding the Scriptures. In order to refute their performance-based version of the gospel, Paul had to go back to the very scriptures they were quoting, and show them more clearly what had been revealed. And he begins this as we turn to our text now in verse 6. Even as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. In arguing for the requirement of circumcision, circumcision the Judaizers were leaning on Genesis chapter 17. But here, Paul goes back to Genesis 15, where God told Abraham to look now toward heaven and tell the stars, if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. And he believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. As Paul quotes Genesis fifteen six, he is in one sense making the perfect argument. There is no competing or conflicting source of truth in this argument. Paul is using the story of the same man, Abraham, as revealed in the same scriptures, and pointing to a promise made by the same God. But Paul is here emphasizing that Abraham believed and was justified, justified before he was circumcised, as we read in Genesis 17. Paul quotes Genesis 15, 6 to point to Abraham's justification through believing in the same gospel promise that the Galatians had believed in. Only it was the gospel in anticipation. It was the gospel in prospect. As Calvin put it, Abraham was not merely justified because he believed that God would multiply his seed, but because he embraced the grace of God Trusting in the promised mediator in whom, as Paul declares elsewhere, all the promises of God are yea and amen. Paul elaborates on this point more extensively in Romans chapter 4. What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only, or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised, or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. Abraham's faith was credited and accounted to him as righteousness. When Abraham believed, God reckoned him to be righteous. This does not mean that Abraham was actually and fully righteous, only that he was declared righteous. He was considered by God to have a right standing before God. Righteousness was imputed to him, to use the theological term. The point Paul is making is that the only way anyone was ever or will ever be able to stand before God in righteousness is to have a righteousness that is not our own, an alien righteousness imputed to us, credited to our account, as it were. And God is pleased to do this when we exercise faith a faith whose object is Christ Jesus, a faith that is itself a gracious gift from God, a faith that excludes works, lest anyone should boast, for no flesh shall glory in his presence. The fact that Abraham was justified as a Gentile while still being an uncircumcised Chaldean made him the perfect example to use for the Galatians who had been wrestling with two questions. Whom does God accept? And on what basis? And Paul answers in verse 7. Know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. Know ye therefore. Note the imperative conclusion. As father Abraham was justified by faith, so shall all of Abraham's children be justified by faith. Father Abraham's true sons and daughters are not the people who keep the law, but the people who live by faith. The family connection is spiritual rather than physical. What then must we believe? Remember the object of Abraham's faith. Abraham believed God. Abraham's faith was not in the promises apart from God. When Abraham didn't know where he was going, or how he was going to get there when he didn't have any children or any reason to think that he ever would, he believed God. And because his faith was in God, he believed God would make good on his promises. This we also see at the conclusion of Romans chapter 4, beginning at verse 20, where we read of Abraham that he did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. And therefore, it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him, who raised up Jesus, our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised up for our justification. Know, therefore, Paul instructs the Galatians, those who share in the same faith as Abraham are the true children of Abraham. In verse 8, Paul shows that faith alone has always been God's plan of salvation for all people everywhere. In the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. Here Paul quotes from the Scripture even further back in Abraham's story, going to the very first promise made to him, which was read earlier in the service from Genesis 12. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee, And in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. In quoting Genesis this way, Paul teaches the Galatians and us something important about the Bible and how we read it. The promises in Genesis come from the mouth of God. And for Paul, what the Bible says and what God says are one and the same. This is the inspiration of Scripture What the Holy Spirit inspired, God speaks. B.B. Warfield, the great Princeton theologian, put it this way, back when Princeton was still a faithful institution held to the tenets of the faith. God and the Scriptures are brought into such conjunction as to show that in point of directness of authority, no distinction was made between them. The Bible is God's Word in written form. It is alive and powerful. When Scripture speaks, God speaks. And this is probably as good a place as any to remind us of a corollary to this truth. Without denying the leading, teaching, and comforting work of the Holy Spirit in any way, whenever we begin a statement with, God said to me, a Scripture reference should be close behind Because Scripture is the Word of God, the Bible speaks with one mind and one message. And that message is justification by faith alone. God's plan of salvation, the covenant of grace, runs all the way from the garden in Genesis 3.15 through the rest of Scripture. And that is why Paul is able to write here in verse 8 that the Scripture preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. Ain't that something? There's some kids who know what I'm talking about. When God promised Abraham that in him all the nations, all the families of the earth would be blessed, he was preaching the gospel, a gospel that would extend beyond the nation of Israel and go out into the whole world. His blessings would flow out as far as the curse is found. He was not preaching universalism, but justification by faith, a justification that has always been intended for the whole world, for every tribe, every people, and every tongue. And so as we come to verse 9, Paul summarizes what he has been writing up to this point. So then, they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. This verse speaks of a common blessing. We are blessed with Abraham so that all his blessings become our blessings. By faith, Abraham's God becomes our God, and we become God's people joining into Abraham's family. Thus, Abraham becomes our brother, as well as a father in the faith. This is part of the doctrine of the communion of the saints. God offers one salvation in one Christ to be shared by one people, including Abraham. Abraham received many blessings from God in his day. He became the father of many nations. But the greatest blessing he ever received was the blessing of justification. The blessing of being welcomed by and reckoned as righteousness before his heavenly father. This was Abraham's greatest blessing. And at this point in verses 10 through 14... Paul turns from the blessings of justification through faith to the curses found in the law, making clear the point of the impossibility of justification through the works of the law. Verse 10. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Here again Paul is turning to scripture to make his point by quoting Deuteronomy 27:26 which reads Cursed be he that confirmeth not all the works of this law to do them. And this curse comes at the end of a long list of curses found in Deuteronomy 27 and so that we might get a feel for what is required of the law let us go through some of them together. Then Moses and the priest the Levite spoke to all Israel, saying, "Take heed and listen, O Israel, this day you have become the people of the Lord your God, Therefore you shall obey the voice of the Lord your God and observe His commandments and his statutes, which I command you this day. And the Levites shall speak with a loud voice and say to all the men of Israel, Cursed is the one who makes a carved or molded image, an abomination to the Lord." the work of the hands of the craftsman, and sets it up in secret. And all of the people shall say, answer and say, Amen. Cursed is the one who treats his father or his mother with contempt. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who moves his neighbor's landmark. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who makes the blind to wander off the road. And all the people shall say, "'Amen.'" Cursed is the one who perverts the justice due the stranger, the fatherless, and widow, and all the people shall say, "'Amen.'" And the list continues, and it goes on. Cursed is the one who attacks his neighbor secretly, and all the people shall say, "'Amen.'" Cursed is the one who takes a bribe to slay an innocent person, and all the people shall say, "'Amen.'" And the list concludes with, Cursed is the one who does not confirm all the words of this law by observing them. And all the people shall say, Amen. God's moral standard is perfect. And he requires nothing less than personal, perfect, and perpetual obedience to his law. And this reveals his character. His law is for everyone, Jew and Gentile alike. Everyone must continue to do everything written in God's law down to the last detail. In citing this passage from Deuteronomy 27:26, Paul is defending the doctrine of justification through faith alone, insisting that no one can be accepted by God through the law unless it is kept in all of its perfection. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. James 2.10 Can you imagine trying to keep every part of the law without stumbling? In all of its perfection until the day you die. Thomas, I have the law. I think I'm going to give this a try. What do you think? Isn't it, isn't it beautiful? I've got it. I can do this. All I have to do is hang on to this and keep it and protect it and hold it close to them. And, and that was actually kind of a long time before breaking the law. That wasn't as loud as it needed to be, was it? You didn't, you didn't jump. As soon as you fail in one little point, you have failed the entire law. There is no hope with this perspective. With man, this is impossible. That is exactly Paul's point here. Everyone who depends on the law is under a curse because the law curses everyone who breaks it, which everyone does. Ironically, by advocating obedience to the law, the Judaizers were not escaping God's curse but actually incurring it. There is no man that sinneth not. First Kings eight six. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. Isaiah fifty three six. And as shorter catechism, Question eighty four puts it, What doth every sin deserve? Answer. Every sin deserveth God's wrath and curse, both in this life and that which is to come. Does anyone still think that law-keeping in and of itself is an attainable means of justification. Consider the Lord's teaching on, in Matthew 5 from his Sermon on the Mount. You have heard it said by them of old time that thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you, Jesus says, that whosoever is angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka shall be in danger of the council, but whosoever shall say thou fool shall be in danger of hellfire. The problem with the law is not the law. The problem with the law is our sin. Since we cannot keep the law perfectly, the law cannot bless us. All it can do is curse us, placing us under the condemnation of divine wrath. Paul continues to emphasize that believing faith and works of the law operate according to different principles in verses 11 and 12. But that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident. For the just shall live by faith, and the law is not of faith, but the man that doeth them shall live in them. These are two completely different ways to live by believing or by doing. If we live by faith, we trust God to justify us through Jesus Christ, as Paul preached in Acts 13. Men and brethren, children of the stock of Abraham, and whosoever among you feareth God, to you is the word of this salvation sent. Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man, Jesus, is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins, and by him all that believe are justified from all things from which ye could not be justified by the law of Moses. On the other hand, if we live by works, we count on our own contribution to make us fully acceptable to God. But we cannot have it both ways. Believing and doing from this perspective are mutually exclusive. As Calvin explained, they are two contrary ways to live, the law justifies him who fulfills all its commands. Whereas faith justifies those who are destitute of the merit of works and rely on Christ alone. To be justified by our own merit and by the grace of another are irreconcilable. In verse 11, Paul is turning to Scripture again. This time from Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. Behold, His soul, which is lifted up, is not upright in him, but the just shall live by faith. Here the prophet Habakkuk condemns the pride of the Babylonians who conquered Jerusalem. He accused them of proud self-confidence. They were not in right relation to God. Instead of trusting in him, they were arrogant, trusting in themselves. God was declaring to them through his prophet that they must live by faith, even as Abraham did. Paul also quotes this same verse from Habakkuk in Romans 1:17. And I don't suppose we can touch on Romans 1:17 without recalling its importance to Martin Luther. So to set this verse in its context, Paul wrote in Romans chapter 1 verses 16 and 17, "For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first" and also for the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Most of us are familiar with this story, but for those who are not, while at the monastery at Erfurt, Luther found himself tormented by his sin and unworthiness and his inability to keep the law. At a later time in Italy, he enters into a very spiritually dark period fearing that he was soon to die, and he finds himself lying on a bed repeating the words, the righteous will live by his faith. Over and over again he repeats this phrase. He later journeys to Rome, seeking an indulgence that the Pope had offered, forgiving the sins of any pilgrim who mounted the stairs at the church of St. John Lateran. Stairs that were alleged to have come from the judgment hall of Pontius Pilate, and to have been stained with the very blood of Christ. Pilgrims would climb these stairs on their knees and pause frequently to to pray and to kiss the stairs as they worked their way to the top. In the words of Luther's son, from a manuscript preserved in the library at Rudolstadt, he writes, As he repeated his prayers on the Lateran staircase... The words of the prophet Habakkuk came suddenly to his mind, the just shall live by faith. Thereupon he ceased his prayers, returned to Wittenberg, and took this as the chief foundation of all his doctrine. Luther no longer believed that there was anything he could do to gain favor with God, and he began to live by faith in God's Son. As Luther himself later said, Before those words broke upon my mind, I hated God and was angry with Him. But when, by the Spirit of God, I understood those words, the just shall live by faith, then I felt born again like a new man. I entered through the open doors into the very paradise of God. This was Luther's conversion experience based on these few words. In verse 12, Paul warns us that if you choose the law, you must live in them. This is the principle of the law. Just do it. If you do the law perfectly and perpetually, you will be legally righteous and you will live. In verse 12, Paul is quoting from Leviticus 18.5, Ye shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man do, he shall live in them. I am the Lord. But as we saw back in verse 10, no one, no one, no man, no woman can do this. But Christ did. And that's the point. In verses 13 and 14, Paul moved to another important point of the Old Testament and demonstrates the only hope that sinners have in this life and in death. And that hope is in the redemption of Christ alone. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is every one that hangeth on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. By writing that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, by becoming a curse for us, Paul is teaching the doctrine of the vicarious substitutionary atonement. Christ bore upon the cross the penalty due our sins and paid the debt that we owe. This is the great exchange. The imputation of our sin to Christ and the imputation of His righteousness to believers. Cursed is one that hangeth on a tree is a quote from Deuteronomy 18. If a man has committed a sin deserving of death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain overnight on the tree, but you shall surely bury him that day, so that you do not defile the land which the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance. For he who is hanged on the tree is accursed of God. God's people took this regulation seriously. When Joshua defeated the five Canaanite kings at Mecada, he had their corpses displayed on five trees and taken down at sunset. Joshua 10.26 The same was done with the seven sons of Saul at Gibeah. 2 Samuel 21.6 Remember, too, that the Jewish leaders wanted to be sure to get Jesus down from the cross before sundown. John 19.31 So as not to desecrate the Sabbath. To hang on a tree was the ultimate curse in the eyes of the Jew. And this historical fact has been a stumbling block for the Jews ever since. In the 2nd century, Justin recounts a conversation with Trifo the Jew who refused to believe that God's Messiah could possibly die on a tree. He said, But whether Christ should be so shamefully crucified, this we are in doubt about. For whosoever is crucified is said in the law to be accursed, so that I am exceedingly incredulous on this point. But it is true, and it was necessary. When Christ took upon our sins upon Himself, He was accursed not for His own sins. He kept the law perfectly, but for ours. Sometimes the power, sometimes the power of a good hymn to communicate spiritual truth is profound. You all know by now I like to I like to quote hymns. They often come to mind as I'm preparing and studying for a message. And this one, I think is particularly apt from John Newton. Let us love and sing and wonder. We sing it here. Part of it goes, let us praise the Savior's name. He has hushed the law's loud thunder. He has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. In verse 4, it goes on to say, Let us wonder, grace and justice join and point to mercy's door. When through grace in Christ our trust is, justice smiles and ask no more. He has washed us in His blood. He has secured our way to God. There it is in verse and lyric, justice satisfied, satisfaction made, and all of this Christ has done for us as we see in verse 14, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So what is the application? What are we to take away from Paul's teaching here? What does it mean to me and to you to be true sons of Abraham by faith? It means putting off legalism wherever and wherever we find it in our lives and in our hearts and in our minds. It's part of the old man. Spurgeon once preached, beloved, the legalist in us is a great deal older than the Christian. If I were a legalist today, I should be some 15 or 16 years older than I am as a Christian, for we are all born legalist. Legalism and works righteousness are a default setting in our fallen flesh. Often it seems that the hardest thing to do is the simplest thing. Learn to confess your sins and trust in Christ's blood for His forgiveness. Trust that the gospel is at work and sufficient in the lives of your brothers and sisters in Christ. Trust that the gospel is at work and sufficient in the lives of your family members. When you are down and defeated in your sin, lift up your eyes to Christ and give thanks for His finished work. You cannot climb a ladder to heaven. And when you are walking in the enjoyment of his blessings, lift up your eyes to Christ and render his praise. As the hymn cited above concludes, let us praise and join the chorus of the saints enthroned on high. Here they trusted him before us. Now their praises fill the sky. Thou hast washed us in thy blood. Thou art worthy, Lamb of God. Praise is the fitting response to what God has done for us in Christ. We are all blessed with faithful Abraham. And at least some of us, many of us it would seem, know that the words of that little Bible song actually are, Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham, and I am one of them, and so are you. So let's all praise the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Our good and gracious Father in heaven, we do indeed praise you. We thank you for your perfect righteousness and for your abundant mercy. We're thankful for Abraham's example and how your word tells us his story. The story not of a perfect man, but a man of faith whose trust was in the Lord. We thank you for Paul's clear teaching on justification through faith and ask now that you would, by the working of your Holy Spirit, continue to work in us, putting off the old man and any striving in our flesh that remains, that we might behold with greater glory the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen, even the faith in our great Savior, in whose name we now pray. Amen.